Hey everyone. How many times have your friends recommended a vitamin or a treatment or some natural health awesomeness that changed their life? Probably a lot. Blue Hive Health was designed to take that friendship to the next level. On this podcast, Giovanna and Stephanie will spend time debunking myths and introducing you to the latest in health and wellness treatments, all to support you and your family. Welcome to the Blue Hive Healthcast. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Blue Hive Healthcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Giovanna, and I'm here today to talk about triggers and relationships. So have you ever wondered, how can I either stop, prevent, or navigate conflict in my relationships a little better? Have you maybe sat down and said to yourself, why can't I get this relationship thing right? It seems like there's always some kind of drama or conflict, or I keep getting triggered, or there's Um, something happening where my partner is getting triggered. Well, this is the show for you today. I have Susan Campbell on the show, and she is the author of the new book called From Triggered to Tranquil. And yes, that is what we're going to talk about today. Susan Campbell is a PhD. She's an author of 11 books on relationships and conflict resolution. She leads seminars internationally as it has appeared on CNN, Newsnight, and Good Morning America. Dr. Campbell has also directed a think tank, run nonprofit organizations, consulted to Fortune 500 companies, and been a guest lecturer at the Harvard, Stanford, and UCLA University's business schools. She works with private clients through her relationship coaching practice and lives in Sonoma County, California. And if you'd like to hear more about Susan, you can always visit her on our website, susancampbell.com. Let's dive into this interview. I know you're going to get a lot out of it and definitely pick up Susan's book. It is a wealth of knowledge and information and resources. Susan, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you on uh, the Blue Hive HealthCast today. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Giovanna. As I mentioned to you before we hit record, I was personally very interested in your work as a fellow uh, relationship coach. Um, But also, even before that, I've been someone who's been geeking out on relationship dynamics since I was really, really young, partially because, well, fully because I had such bad modeling of that in my parents that I I wanted to be sure that I, you know, got on top of that and, and sort of avoided that. So it's really cool every time I get to geek out on someone about relationship dynamics. And in particular, you've written this amazing book. Um, which will help us really navigate our own personal uh, issues around being triggered. It's called From Triggered to Tranquil. And I read that title when your publisher came through to request the interview and thought, oh, yes, that is so needed right now in this world. (laughs) Um, Many of us are dealing with a lot of triggers. And I'm really, really excited to know more about you and how it is that you um, began this work and, and why it is that it called to you to do this type of work for your for your world? Well, I guess I got into relationship coaching because I actually had good role models in my parents and I got married around, around 21 and then I realized, wow, relationships are a lot harder than my parents made it look. They were different, but they dealt with their differences in a rational, mature way. They were just mature people. And I didn't realize until I got married and also, you know, did some other dating where you get 
really intimate with other people who've had a different kind of parenting and you realize not everyone is as lucky as me. And there's an awful lot of people who have unhealed childhood wounds that of course come to play in your adult relationships. So I've actually been married four times, Giovanna. So it, 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 I really did go through some pain in my own relationships. So that's what motivated me to look into emotional reactivity, also known as trigger reactions. And now I've been doing this for 55 years. And so I was motivated to write this particular book because that's what every couple has to deal with. And actually beyond couples, because I've written a number of books for working with triggers in couples, but now this one is more anybody, you don't have to be in a couple to, to get triggered, to get those old developmental traumas re-stimulated like the fear that I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm not visible, my voice doesn't matter. See, these are the kind of old wounds that get re-triggered when your partner interrupts you at the dinner table or you know, just ordinary things that couples are always going to get into. Those things re-stimulate the old pain of childhood. And there's a lot of value in knowing what your triggers are and knowing how to work with them, because actually it leads to deeper intimacy and deeper self-compassion. But most people think, oh, there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with us if we get triggered. And that's not the case. This book is designed to help people realize that almost everybody, at least if they're in any kind of important relationship, they're going to get triggered sometime. I love how you framed that. And I I especially appreciate the fact that you said that you had a wonderful example of relationship and you grew up with that. And I find that for some, many of my, of my clients and people that I speak to friends, family, you know, some of their biggest frustration is, well, wait a second. I, I did have good role models. Like I didn't see a bad example of this. So why do I keep messing this up? And I love that you brought that forward because anybody, whether you've had good examples or not, can experience challenges and troubles in relationships because ultimately, and I, I don't know if you would agree with this, we're dealing with, you know, the relationship to ourself, right? As you mentioned with that inner child wounding and such. Um, so I really appreciate that you brought that forward because I think it will help people listening to understand that, you know, this is for everybody. Um, and the second thing I loved about that is that this isn't just about romantic relationship, right? One of my philosophies you know, in my practice is that everything is a relationship, right? Like your relationship to your friends and to your coworkers and those same triggers that you talked about can get triggered by, you know, the lady in front of you at the grocery store just as easily as they can by your romantic partner. So I, I really appreciate that distinction and bringing that in here because, you know, we, everything I believe is a relationship, um, even the relationship to, you know, money and ourselves and our world, um, so I, I absolutely love that. And I wonder if we can dive a little deeper in that because you brought up this um, topic around these childhood 
wounds that are, I think we're often walking around completely unconscious that some of those, I call it the little kids still running around with scissors in our head. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're still walking around with that. So can we dive into that a little bit more and, and maybe give some examples of what some of those might be and how they would manifest in a trigger or in a relationship? Well, let me give you my own example, because even though I had wonderful parents, my mother's milk didn't come down when I was just born. And so those are some of these inevitable things. You know, you can be a super mature mom, but your baby's not getting milk. And so that affected me. And of course, I didn't realize that until I got married and started looking into, see, my, my early trauma had to do with this little infant sucking and sucking, trying to get nourishment, and also feeling that my mother's anxious and uncomfortable with my wants. So there's a program deep inside of me that doesn't really come out until I'm in a romantic type relationship where I'm afraid to ask for what I want because it's going to make the other person anxious and uncomfortable. You know, that goes way back to the first week of life. So some of your trigger reactions, you're not going to remember the early traumas that um, caused you, we could say caused, I think that's a fair word, caused you to have these later patterns, like a pattern of being afraid to ask for what you want. Uh, that same pattern, the fear of asking for what you want is across the board, so many people have that one. And it only comes out around really vulnerable things. I mean, at work, you may be able to ask for what you want just fine. But let's, let's say you had a, a different childhood than mine. And your developmental, we call these developmental traumas. What they really mean is the child's core needs to feel loved, accepted, to feel not alone, like if you're afraid, there's somebody you can go to who will hold you and reassure you that you're safe. Somebody who helps you put your feelings into words. So these are, these are, these are things that I actually got most of those things, but let's say a, a child is seven years old and they're the middle, they're the middle child of like you know, four other kids. So like there's one ahead of you and two younger than you. And it's just something like that. And your parents are so busy that when you're looking for attention, they're giving it to somebody else, particularly right after that next kid is born. You, all of a sudden you're getting less attention, just little things like that, normal things that happen during a person's development actually can signal to the child. And it's, it's not rational, but it's the way it feels inside the child. Hey, I just, I just lost my mama. She doesn't love me anymore. Or when I try to get attention, there's always somebody else whose voice seems to get in the way and I get ignored. You see, these are, I mean, yes, people do have parents who really traumatized them and who they were scared of, but we're not even talking about that kind of thing. I mean, they do talk about that in the book, but I also want to get across to just average people who don't think that they had any childhood trauma. These are not 
shock traumas, like you were, I mean, some of, some people were beaten and neglected terribly and that sort of thing. And those would, you know, the beating would be a shock trauma, like something really dramatic happens to your system, to your, to your little survival system, your body. But so, ma so many of the traumas are much more subtle. And so we, it almost takes an, a relationship in your adult life to help you get in touch with this. And the reason we don't get in touch with it until we're grown and can't really process it and heal it until we're grown up is because now we're self-reliant. We're not dependent on those adults anymore. We have better skills, better coping skills. And so we really do have the capacity to reparent ourselves now. We just don't know it yet. So I like to put out the idea that we've all got a big reparenting job to do here and we can help each other heal in intimate relationships and friend relationships. But like you said, everything's a relationship. So anytime you get upset in relationship to something in your life, it's the opportunity to begin that inquiry, like, whoa, what does this feel like? And is this feeling similar to something that happened a long time ago, like that feeling of being ignored or invisible? Such a great way that you highlight that, right? Because I think that is a super important point for people to listen to and hear um, if, if even just to remove the self-blame and this, the whole, like, why do I keep messing this up? And why can't I get this relationship thing right? Like, so much of this was imprinted on our nervous system at a very young age when, as you say, we didn't have the capacity, we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the maturity to process and deal with it. And, you know, somebody might be listening to this going now going, oh, great. Like, you know, I too wasn't breastfed as a child, you know, milk wasn't coming out. And they might be thinking, oh my God, like, so what now I'm, that's it, I'm damaged. And, and no, <laughs> the good news is that now, um, Susan, and you said this so beautifully, now that we are older, and I have the same belief that our job as adults is to reparent uh, the child within, right? Now that we're older, they come out and now we're able to deal with it. And, and we can actually revert or change some of this nervous system response um, and, and be more em empathic or empathetic rather to ourselves and our little selves. And I know that this requires looking at the emotional pain, right? This requires actually, you know, being able to sit with that pain and, and um, you know, understand it and take responsibility. But so many of us want to run from emotional pain, right? It's, a, it's almost like an instinct. It's like, nope, that's painful, hot stove, get away from it. Um, most people are basically running from that. So how can we stop this running from our emotional pain and how could we rather use it to our benefit? Well, first we probably have to value the information in the pain. So in the book, I really help people see that once you notice a trigger reaction as an adult, if you learn to pause, and I have several practices in the book where you open up a more compassionate, safe space within yourself. There's some breathing practices and some ways to use your attention where you become the compassionate witness. So it becomes safer then to allow feelings in because you also know how 
to make yourself, I'm going to say, make yourself bigger than the pain. You become the compassionate witness, the good mother archetype, that kind of thing. And so people need to know that it's possible to do these things within oneself, that you can develop a nurturing relationship with yourself. So, so that makes the pain less scary. And also realizing, so once you learn these practices and you calm yourself when you're having a reaction, what happens then is memories start bubbling up to the surface that were pressed down and were unconscious. And most people would say, well, I don't wanna remember painful things. However, once you do this practice a couple of times and really feel how nurturing it is to be able to allow yourself to cry for that little five-year-old who was neglected, who was forgotten a lot of times when the parent said they'd do something for the kid, but the parent let the kid down and the kid feels unimportant and forgotten. You remember that almost like you're watching a sad movie of this little kid. So there's various techniques to get a little bit of distance while also feeling empathy and compassion for yourself. Now, I mean, the fact is, and I try to sell this idea in the book, like there's a really important reason to start to get connected and more in a more nurturing and friendly relationship to your emotional pain. There's a reason for that, because if you don't, that unconscious emotional pain is basically running your life. You're always vigilant about, oh, I'm not important. That person said hi to her before they said hi to me. So that means I'm unimportant. You, you're vigilant for whatever that old pain is that's buried in your subconscious oh, that's, there it is, that's happening again. Or if, if my issue is fear that I can't get what I want, that I'm gonna be rejected, if that's my issue, if the person just pauses. I remember once I asked a friend if I could put a flyer up on her bulletin board at, at her office where they advertise seminars, and she paused for a minute, just that pause had me getting anxious and go, and so what I said, it what I said, and this is one of my automatic patterns. I said, oh no, I don't need that. Never mind. That's not important. So we all have Interesting. these. Interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, I mean, yeah you you edited yourself before. Yeah, before you could even get yeah. what you wanted, you edited yourself. Yeah, I, I resonate with that because I've I've done that too. <laughs> you know, and I, I hope some other listeners recognize themselves in these kind of the are seen as normal, but see that pain is running me. So I'm not playing with a full deck in a sense. My awareness is limited by that fear. And I'm always trying to negotiate reality so that I don't get that hurt stimulated again, mm. that rejection. So then I don't get what I want. A lot of times I don't even allow those wants to come up to the surface. Yeah. And it takes some practice, right. To, to develop that. I call it like the pause right between stimulus and response, right. From that moment that you have that trigger, like now I'm sure because of all the work you've done, you can catch that in the moment and sort of create a pause between you jumping in and editing yourself and saying, Oh no, no, I don't need that. It's sort of like 
take a deep breath, you know, feel the anxiety, breathe through it and allow the other person to answer. Because I mean, ultimately, like we're meaning making machines, we're constantly making meaning and trying to, you know, decipher the next thing. And many times to our detriment, like that example that, that you just gave, which is, which is interesting. I, I remember I, I went to see this um, coach. Um, she wasn't exactly a coach. She was more of a spiritual sort of healer. When I first moved to Mexico years ago, when I went away um, to go there on sabbatical, and she had said to me <clears throat> in very broken English, she had said to me, I was suffering over a painful breakup at the time. And she had said to me, um, you don't cry right. And I was like, what do you mean I don't cry right? How could you not cry right? <laughs> right? And she said, no, she goes, when you cry, she said, you cry like boo-hoo, like, you know, woe is me kind of thing. And I said, well, how are you supposed to cry? And she said, well, you're just supposed to like feel the emotion and let it run through you, right? Like it's not who you are. And it took me, I think, another year to figure out what she was saying. But it was this concept of what you just described, which is like not to fall into and identify with that emotion and make it who you are. But again, create that little bit of a gap, a little bit of a pause so that you can decipher like, oh, this is actually triggering, you know, X, Y, and Z. And this is how I can sort of work with it, right? Yes. And in the book, I uh, talk about the five steps to trigger work. And once you've practiced these five steps, and it could be a little time consuming at first, but then you can do exactly what you said, Giovanna you can pause very quickly and all the five steps are kind of happening in almost like a millisecond because you're so familiar. You can go, ah, oh, I know this place. I know what to do. And what I'll, just an example of myself, when I, when I feel a trigger, I just kind of either mentally or actually physically put my hands around my heart area. You know, I don't always physically do it, but it's like, just a little anchoring mechanism that reminds me of all the other steps to trigger work. So first you have to kind of learn the notes and the chords like in music, but then you can play jazz, you can improvise and you can you kind of have all these tools integrated. And honestly, you're not as triggerable anymore once you do that. I love that analogy of like knowing, you know, knowing the chords and then you can sort of play the music. Um, what do we do, Susan, though? Like, so let's say, okay, we've been doing this work and I've done, you know, I've looked at the book, uh, which I recommend for everybody. Uh, five steps are invaluable in there. And, we, you know, we're practicing that and I'm, you know, learning my chords and I'm doing my work. And I notice that, you know, whether it's my partner or a family member, I notice when they're getting triggered right? And it's, nobody likes to be called on their triggers, right? Like nobody likes to be told, hey, this is just your childhood stuff, right? Usually we get some expletive in return, right? How do you deal with that when, when you know that you're doing your piece, but let's say you're identifying that your partner isn't there yet and they're in their trigger? Well, I agree with you, Giovanna, that nobody likes to be told, hey, you're triggered. So you, you do want to be careful about that. But most couples, if they've been working together with these tools, they have an agreement that I can say pause if I notice I'm getting triggered or if I think my partner's getting triggered. Because frankly, even though we've had 
rational conversations about, okay, these are the early warning signs that tell me that you're triggered and you've shared those with me. I may misperceive, because we're an intimate couple, I may misperceive those cues. Maybe you're just asking me an innocent question and I get triggered something about your tone of voice that I project, oh, there, there's mother quizzing me and trying to control me again or that sort of thing. So um, sometimes you're not always the best judge of whether your partner's triggered or not. And if you think they're triggered, you're probably going to be a little bit triggered yourself because your two nervous systems are wired together when you're in an intimate relationship. And we could say to some degree, we're all wired together. Like when you said everything is a relationship, you know, mm. we feel the vibes of everyone around us. We could say that, but I want to come back to the intimate couple because that's it's a very rich territory, obviously. So if I think my partner's triggered, it's just my responsibility to say the word pause because we already have made an agreement that if anybody says the word pause, we will both just sit quietly and take a few slow conscious breaths together. And then we'll see how triggered we are after that. But saying the word pause brings a certain amount of consciousness back into the room with both of us after we practice it a while. It's, it's, it's not easy to learn to just stop in the middle of a, of a trigger episode and pause, but people do learn to do it. And it's extremely important, especially if you guys get into these reactive cycles where the, mo the more she questions, the more he hides and the more he hides, the more she questions, you know, those kind of cycles. Ah, yes, the avoidant yes. and the anxious um, dynamic. <laughs> yes. So um, what do you do when you notice your partner's triggered? You can say pause, or if you prefer, if you don't have that kind of an agreement with your partner yet, what can I do to create a safe space for this person? If I'm really sure that I'm not triggered, because sometimes, sometimes you're not going to be triggered when your partner's triggered, but I want to caution people that a lot of times you are and don't know it. But let's let's say this other scenario where I'm I'm really spacious and open, but I start to see my partner revving up in some way, or perhaps shutting down, not talking. Uh, so I might, what do you need from me? I'm here for you. Some kind of reassurance so that they have the space to just talk about what's going on for them. That can work for some partners. Other partners, and you kind of know what calms your partner's nervous system. Other partners might just need a friendly touch on the shoulder or just something not too intrusive, but just like, I'm here with you. It's okay. We're okay. So those are the kind of things you can actually help your partner calm down sometimes. But sometimes you just both need to pause and calm yourselves. I like that you mentioned coming into an agreement with your partner, right? Of like either saying pause or, you know, inquiring on, into what calms them because ultimately, you know, we are dealing with, um, especially if it's a, an intense trigger, right? Like there's that like 
concept of like the amygdala hijack, right? Like, so our fight flight freeze response and, you know, we're, we're, we go into self-preservation. Sometimes that trigger is so deep that, you know, we, we don't, we actually can't pause because it's, we've literally been hijacked. And, you know, if we haven't done enough work yet, then that just, even sometimes when we have done the work, I can just, it's a runaway train. And I like that. I like that idea of, you know, ahead of time, understanding what calms you and maybe communicating that to your partner and, and sort of vice versa. I know for myself, when my partner has just paused and said, what do you need here? Like, what, what could I do? It instantly like diffused, you know, any trigger, I, whatever I was upset about may still have been present, but the fact that they responded that way helped me just get out of that fight, flight, or freeze and, you know, freak out is, is the fourth one. Um, and, and make me just calm down and just realize, okay, I can talk about this and they've got me, they're, they, they've, they're holding me. Right. So maybe we could talk a little bit uh, about that whole response and how, you know, biologically even, and physiologically, you know, we can get taken over by this fight, 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 flight, or freeze response. Yes. Um, when, you perceive danger in your environment, you are going to go into a fight, flight, freeze. So let me explain the background that we know from brain science to help people realize that there's nothing wrong with you when you get triggered. Uh, in the book, From Triggered to Tranquil, I have a whole section on how we're all wired up in one part of our brain, at least, to act first and think about it later, you know, to be very quick to react. That's because in primitive times, when the brain was developing, and the, let's call it the primitive human, and the animals had the same part of the brain, and now brain science scientists are calling this the survival alarm system. And it's in the amygdala area of the midbrain, which is very, very close to the reptile brain. And that area is always scanning for danger. So when you hear the term, uh, don't let your amygdala be hijacked, it's very, it, that's what that means. It means that your amygdala got stimulated by some untoward stimulus or a perceived assault or insult to your self-esteem, to the connection between yourself and a loved one. So if, if you think there's a disconnection between yourself and somebody that you love and depend on, that now is perceived by the amygdala as danger, as a survival issue. So we as humans now also have this prefrontal cortex that can correct the false alarms in that survival alarm system, can actually communicate with the amygdala and say, hey, you know, you and your partner have had this issue before, you've resolved it, don't go to the divorce lawyer yet. No, things like that, because when people's amygdalas are hijacked, they'll say all kinds of things. Yeah, you know, no I'm, rationing. <laughs> I'm out of here. You know, I've never loved you. They'll say things that they really don't mean. I know it's, it's very sad because those feelings feel real, 
they feel almost more the feelings that come from the amygdala area because it's comes from that survival reaction they feel more intense and more real than the calmer more rational words calm mm-hmm. word of the prefrontal cortex that says now now you two have worked through this conflict before don't don't run stay talk so what we are doing here through these five steps to trigger work is we're strengthening the connection between the survival alarm system and the prefrontal cortex. And we know from neuroscience now, there's this thing that they're calling neuroplasticity, which means you can continue to strengthen the brain wiring that goes from the cortex down to the amygdala and reassures safety. You can strengthen those by using them. Practice causes a muscle to get stronger. Now, these are not muscles, but you could think of them that way. They're neural connections. So the more you practice these five steps of trigger work, getting yourself back to the prefrontal cortex where you can evaluate the situation, because the cortex is the part of you that can have empathy for your partner, can have long-term vision. Oh yes, we have been here before. And how did we get through it last time? Oh, oh, I held her and she cried and then we were close again. Or we had a repair conversation. And the book talks about how to repair if you have made a big mess with your triggers. There's, I mean, that's, that's one of the five steps is reconnecting after you've made some unfortunate statements to one another that you really didn't mean come back and really saying, you know, I didn't mean that. I was triggered. That was probably my fear that I'm invisible coming up. And then you go, if, you know, if I had it to do over and, and you really come back into reassuring each other that we're okay, we're loved. I'm not blaming you anymore. So that's the repair part. I love that. And it just really, I, I love that you highlighted as well, the neuroplasticity, right? Because it, it can feel so daunting when you're in, you know, conflict. It can feel like, oh my God, this is, we're, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know my way out of this. And a lot of this is, you know, what you said, right? The neuroplasticity, like the uh, early days, you know, I learned neurons that fire together, wire together, and but we can rewire right? Those, those habitual patterns of reactivity. And that's, what's so hopeful in this. And, you know, of course I've seen that happen with myself and I'm continuing to work on that. And I see it happening with, you know, people around me and clients. So it really is possible when you do this, this work to unravel these sort of gnarly bits that have us um, really reacted and triggered. And I wonder, you know, as we're capping off the interview, if you can share with us what the book has to offer and and maybe some tips and tools for people right now that are dealing with their own triggers. We're, of course, living in a time of great uh, stress. You know, we're coming out of hopefully a global crisis. Um, There's so much that has been triggered in people. Much of it has been the survival fear, right? On one one end of the spectrum or another. Um, I wonder what, you know, advice you can have for the audience that's listening that has been dealing with that in this last, you know, 18 months. 
Well, it's very, very important to have good self-regulation tools, no matter what's going on in the external world, but particularly now. There are so many intersecting crises, as you've suggested, Giovanna. It's, I don't have to name them. And they're causing people to point fingers at each other too, because when we don't know how to solve a problem, we look for a scapegoat. And so the, we could say that the mental state of humanity is kind of in chaos right now. We are like a disorganized system. You know, they use the term in family therapy, a disorganized family, which certainly does not create safety for the children because the you know, parents are against each other. Maybe there's some addiction in, in the system. And we certainly have that now in our collective system of us humans on this planet. So the first thing that we can, just the first line of defense is understanding how to regulate our own nervous system. So we have all of our faculties, all our marbles available to us, our prefrontal cortex to deal with the real problems. So many of us are creating fake problems. It's, I mean, creating is the wrong word because we're not doing it intentionally but we only, we only know how to worry about things that are not really survival issues. They're just assaults to our ego. You know, you think something different than I think. And if we get, if we allow ourselves to stay in that hijacked amygdala state, we are not going to be able to join together and cooperate to solve the real problems that are facing humanity today. So self-regulation is the first thing. And that's one of the five steps in this book. I want to say the title again, From Triggered to Tranquil, because we need to know how to get to that tranquil state where we're coming from our prefrontal cortex and we can actually make good decisions. You don't make good decisions from the amygdala. It's like, I'm, I want a divorce. I'm out of here. You know, I never loved you. I mean, those are the kind of things that come out of the amygdala being hijacked and the same thing if the amygdala is hijacked in any kind of a discussion about a larger decision like a community you know should we ration water should we um require masks in the movie theater you know these are some of the real issues and if people are taking all that stuff personally and they're operating from their conditioned mind, which is that little child who was deprived of this need or that need. So they're still acting out of the deprived child or the abused child. And they're not acting from the good of the whole, including the good of the whole me. They're just acting out of the concern for one little aspect of your ego rather than the whole person. So people are making very bad decisions nowadays on this planet. And um, we all need the tools to come back to, oh, I don't have to avoid this emotional pain by projecting it onto some imagined enemy who thinks differently than me. I can own my own emotional pain. I can nurture that back into wholeness. Because the whole thing here is when you do this inner work, you become a more whole and effective human being. Like you, you are operating with a full deck. 
which makes you a more credible leader, makes you a more credible parent. So the world really needs more people now who are operating from wholeness rather than from just one little conditioned part of their inner child. Oh, so beautifully said. I wish we could take that message, distill it, you know, and put it in the water. <laughs> put it in the water system. Yeah, so yeah. Come everybody on, can y'all. drink that. <laughs> um, because it's so true. And, and uh, you know, of course, you know, we make blanket statements, you know, that, you know, fear is the real pandemic and there's all kinds of, these, but really, if you boil it down to a lot of our, our polarity right now, our triggers, our actions, even they're very, very fear dominated and, and some for good reason, obviously. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we need to take responsibility for those pieces and not necessarily continually act in this, you know, literally the whole world has had an amygdala hijack, right? It's like, it's not be hijacked by these emotions, but, and, and, and get to a place of clear thinking. Um, so, and not just for the greater good of all, but I mean, of course, for yourself, right? We all know when we're highly stressed, our stress hormones, uh, like cortisol rise, it contributes to like heart disease and cardiovascular issues and you name it. So there's so, so many reasons why it's important to do this work on your own triggers, um, because it will ultimately get you healthy and make your relationships healthier. And, and really, I think ultimately the world a healthier place. So that's my little, my little spiel, Susan. I'm so happy that you came on the show today. I think your book is amazing. Um, I'm definitely going to be gifting it to a few of my clients. It's such great work. And I so appreciate everything you're putting into the world. And the fact that you came on the HealthCast to share a little bit of it with us. Well, thank you for this interview, Giovanna. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening to the Blue Hive HealthCast. Did you get an insight from this episode or learn something new? Consider sharing it with a friend. If you love the show, we'd appreciate it if you subscribed via iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows and give us a rate and review. Visit us at bluehivehealth.com for more information on our programs and services.